Welcome to the Atypical Rainbow. I'm Paul. And I'm Grant. And this is another episode in the series Spectrum Analysis. Today, we're going to talk about autistic history. And similar to a previous topic around the importance of history in LGBTQ uh, era time, thinking about how important it is to be aware of autistic history. And I guess in this particular situation, how much our kids, Jake and Matt, should be aware of autistic history. So, in the last one, we began with what would my life have been different if I had lived in a more progressive moment, like if I was a teenager now, and therefore came out. So, do you want to start this one with what would you have done differently if you had been diagnosed as a child? I think that's a really hard thing to judge, because it may not necessarily be about what I would have done differently, but what others would have done differently. Um, I, I think that as a child, I may not have necessarily appreciated what the diagnosis meant per se, and perhaps the knowledge around it from myself, my parents, my teachers would not have been as robust or have been as person-centered as I think it is now. I think if it had been diagnosed in, you know, the nineties with autism, I think there still would have been very much a push for how do I get fixed rather than how does the world try to adapt to what my needs are? I think that I would have appreciated it, particularly in my teen years. Having looked back at my teen years, I recognize a lot of the issues that I had with um, my relationships with other people, with friends, with family, was certainly influenced in a negative way by my autism in that there were a lot of issues around emotional dysregulation, not understanding motivations. Uh, and so, but again, I think that would have benefited from both sides being aware of the diagnosis and being willing to accommodate. But even then, that's under the assumption that at that time, my parents would have accommodated. You know, I grew up in a Catholic Vietnamese household. I mean, that's, um, that's double heavy duty rigidity right there. And... I think that even if I had the diagnosis, my parents may still have been of the mindset that it just really is a matter of training me out of the autism. So, I don't know. I don't know. I certainly think that, yeah, I think in my 20s, I think I would have really appreciated it because um, I had a greater self-awareness of myself and I was more in charge of my own emotions and I was going through all these experiences with Again, relationships being my particular um, bugbear, as well as socialising. You know, we've talked a lot about going out to nightclubs and stuff. I think if I'd been aware of my own diagnosis, I may not have guilted myself so badly into thinking, you know, what's wrong with me? Why can't I get this? Why is it so easy for everyone else, but really, really difficult for me? Because I think that's something that I've managed to achieve in my 30s, but it would have been nice to not have had to go through the crappiness to get to this point now. Yeah, so do you think you would have interacted with friendships differently? Like, I know you're sort of infamous for cutting people out of your life. Yes. Do you think that if you had been diagnosed in your 20s, whether that would have made any difference to that? I'm not sure, really. Maybe I wouldn't have tried as hard. Maybe it might have been worse. I'm not... I I can't tell. Okay. Yeah. I think that... There is that fine line, which we talked about uh, in an early episode about accommodation, but it's like self-accommodation. You know, if I had been in a position where I knew that I was having difficulty and instead of trying to push myself beyond my comfort zone, I just kind of settled into my 
autism, I might not have necessarily met the friends that I did. Like, I remember uh, a friend of mine telling me years and years after we'd first met that um, she was really nervous when on the first day of med school. And she was pleasantly surprised by me because I just, well, I saw her looking awkwardly standing in a corner and I thought, well, this person looks like they're having trouble. I'm going to go there and talk to them about it. And she, she felt like that was kind of the start of her social introduction. She was really grateful for me having done that. And I wonder whether if I had known I had autism, whether I would have looked at her in the same way and gone, I'm going to do this thing that is very out of character for me, which is to walk up to a stranger and just start talking to them. It probably depends on how much social skills training you've got. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Because you might have been taught to do that. True, true. And once again, uh, I think that that really, really depends on what my parents' attitude towards autism was at the time, you know? Mm. I've learned this about myself as an adult, which is that I tend to socialise better either when I'm in the majority or in a one-to-one situation. So if she were in a group of three or four, I wouldn't have even contemplated walking up to her. But because she was a person who was on their own, who looked shy, my head kind of went, okay, this is a situation that's comfortable for me, and I feel like it's the right thing to do. So maybe empathy, maybe rule following, who knows. Uh, so I did it, and it, it it worked out well at the time. We're not friends anymore now. Uh, not through any particular issue other than just drifting apart, but I do remember her telling me that story uh, a while back. Fair enough. Have you read Neurotropes? Yeah, I read it uh, cover to cover, and it was interesting, but also a little bit of a slog. I think that the the depth of history is fascinating, but there's a lot. Let's just put it that way. There's a lot. Do you want to summarise what Neurotribes is? So, Neurotribes, uh, written by a man named Steve Silverman, who um, who might who might be interested in the show because he has autism and is also gay, wrote Neurotribes with the philosophy that autism is, in essence, a personality variant. So I think that the term neurotypical and neuroatypical was at least to some degree either born out of or influenced by this book. And so what he does is he dives into the history of autism in a great amount of depth. And I'm going to leave to you to summarize because to be honest, it was a few years ago that I read it and my memory for it isn't great. Um, but he sort of goes back in time to talk about autism through the, through the ages, even going so far back as... Uh, a number of centuries ago, where while there is the belief that autism is a new condition, uh, there is uh, there was an account of a particular gentleman who went to great lengths to basically avoid talking to people, and a lot of his behaviour could be described as autistic traits, but the term didn't really exist back then. So it is interesting to kind of see how far back uh, it all goes, and to with the idea that yeah. Autism is a personality variant. Yeah, I think the difference between autism and homosexuality is we can sort of look back and go, okay, these people were behaving in a certain way, that was homosexuality. Whereas with autism, because it requires a diagnosis, you can't really accurately and completely diagnose someone who was a few centuries ago. You can make guesses. Um, And a lot of people do make guesses about people like Albert Einstein. 
but without the actual diagnosis, it's just a guess. But I think that's the other level of it, in that homosexuality is defined by a singular trait, whereas autism is a collection of traits of which you can have varying degrees of each trait. So I think even even in the absence of a diagnosis per se, I think the difficulty isn't that the diagnosis needs to be made, but the diagnosis is far more complex. Yeah, and that's why it's harder to do um, with someone who is long dead. Like, you can't get their parent to do a fill in a survey. <laughs> yeah, exactly. In order to actually do a diagnosis. Yeah, and, and I think that a lot of effort goes into trying to separate autism out of um, what would be traditionally seen as personality variants. So, the two key criteria I think is relevant yeah, when looking at so historical figures is one that it has to be present in the developmental stage. So it has to there has to be witness or evidence that it these traits were present when they were young, and it also needs to cause dysfunction, either occupational or social. Um, or, or I think when under social, I think relationship comes under that as well. So I think there's and admittedly that's current criteria. So the criteria, um, according to the American Psychiatric Association, has evolved over the decades. But certainly by current criteria, in order to try and not overdiagnose, in order not to label everyone with the diagnosis of autism, I think those two criteria are quite key. And really, the biggest barriers as to why we can't look at Albert Einstein and say, "Oh, yeah." autism because by the clinical definition there has to be dysfunction yeah so yeah like they're educated guesses but anything beyond like before the diagnosis was i guess categorized mm. is just going to be educated guess forever um but yeah so in neurotribes steve silberman basically starts with the educated guesses and then goes through um when it people started diagnosing autism, even though I don't think they called it autism at the time, um, the treatments and moving through. And the reason he got interested in it was actually because there was a belief that a lot of autism was appearing in kids in Silicon Valley. But when he went to meet these children who had autism, he'd look at the parents and go, okay, I think these parents also probably have autism but aren't diagnosed. And sort of that idea of two people with autistic traits or possibly even undiagnosed autism getting together and producing a child whose autism is more obvious. And therefore, it probably wasn't power lines or anything like that, which people thought at the time. Mm. So, yeah, he goes through the history. There's a lot of stuff about the Nazi period because the Nazis had a lot of influence on how people with, I guess invisible disabilities and maybe visible disabilities. I should know this. Uh, people with disabilities were treated uh, during the Nazi time, like, you know, sterilization and, you know, concentration camps and stuff. So there was a lot of stuff about, you know, them being inferior and therefore treatment that, you know, quite inhumane treatment. And there was also a lot of times where kids would be taken from their parents and, put into institutions and basically forgotten about. There was also quite a long period where it was believed that mothers being too cold cause autism. So a lot of blame was put on mothers if they had an autistic child. It was just assumed they were a bad mother. Mm. So, yeah. So it's an interesting history and it goes through to, you know, modern days. So I think it won an award in 2015. So it's a fairly modern book, but a few years old now. 
But having read about autistic history, what effect did that have on you? Not much, really. I think that... I think that for me, autistic history only confirms what I always thought, which is that there's too much discrimination and too much oversimplification of autism. And while I see the value of a diagnosis, and while I know that giving myself the label has really helped me a lot, I know that it comes with can start come with stigma and it can come with problems. And really, this is just an account of all the ways in which there were problems and people tried to stamp it out. And although, obviously, the Nazis were awful about disability, regardless of whether it was visible or invisible, the book also charts the period through the 80s where there was the belief that, again, autism could be cured with the right interventions. And unfortunately, that still exists today where there's the belief that with the right combination of foods or the right combination of activities and God help us, the anti-vaxxers, the, there is a way to prevent autism. And it just, I mean, the whole thing horrifies me, basically, because there are so many great things that we get from autism and so many of our uh, great historical figures likely had autism or at the very least had a very autistic pr- approach to their world. And the lesson that we all should be learning and to some degree have learned is that it's not about fixing people with autism. It's about giving them the room to be themselves. And even one of the, so the, the earlier account I was saying about the, the, the fellow centuries ago. So the example that they gave was, um, he was a fairly well-off gentleman, I think in England, one of the, so I kind of imagine a Downton Abbey type, type air place, but that's obviously not, not accurate. There were there were accounts when he would be in at a party of some sort, uh, of how he would need to be drawn in uh, into a conversation, and what his compatriots recognised is that they need to talk, choose a topic that was suited to him. But once he they got onto that, he was incredibly learned about it. Was full of information. He was um he was a, a massive collector of I think uh books and documents and basically all about the information. He had wings of libraries. But uh, the other side of the coin to that was he didn't do well when interacting with other people in his household. So he was a man who was well off and had servants. So he had butlers and, and maids and all those sorts of things. To the point where one at one, one occasion he... Um, ran into, I guess, a servant on the main set of stairs to the house. So what he then did was he built a second set of stairs that was only for the servants to use, so that only he was allowed to use this first set of stairs. Now, that sounds like a very rich person problem, and one could argue that may simply be an upstairs-downstairs problem, but when you put it in the context of autism and how he felt he his home environment should be to, for his own comfort... It's kind of an example of self-accommodation. It's, a, it's about the world. And then even the socialising example is about the people around him or the environment changing to suit his sensibilities rather than him having to adapt to other people. Yeah. So I guess, like, drawing it back to compar- comparing it to, um, like, rainbow history, I guess I don't feel that there's a danger of it being repeated 
in a way where people accept it. Like, there could be a danger of, you know, Nazis being a thing again for some reason. Yeah. Um, and that can be a problem for a lot of different minorities. But I feel like if we started, if someone started sterilizing or, you know, locking up all the autistic people, that there would be public outcry now. So I think n- people not knowing the history of autism probably doesn't put us in danger of repeating it. But how why, do you though? feel about that? Like I, I'm not. I'm. I don't know. I guess I, I see both as you know invisible differences to some degree. To some degree. Again, when we, I guess when we're talking about levels of autism, people with comorbid intellectual disability. That's probably a slightly different idea because you can have autism without intellectual disability. Mm-hmm. So, if we were to have a, a fictional third wave of Nazis, it would really depend on what what the criteria is, I guess. Well, no, I'm saying like if, the, if Nazis rose again, I think people would react to it and fight against it. Mm. But like, so with like what happened to gay people, I feel like there's danger of that being done to trans people if we forget our history. Or that idea of, you know, they're predators, they're a danger to your children. That's kind of the narrative that's now arising around trans people. So, in a way, knowing the history is important to avoid repeating it. Whereas with autistic people, I'm not sure... I can't really see a way, maybe I'm too optimistic, (laughs) where we end up in a situation where we go back to sterilizing or locking up autistic people without it being some sort of crazy, oh my God, human rights is being violated, let's fight against this Amnesty International thing. Like, I don't feel like the population would sit by and let it happen again. But why, though? I don't, I don't know. Maybe, maybe it's just optimism. Like, I, I don't feel like we do do that. But then maybe you feel different from working with people with intellectual disability. Maybe there's sort of a danger of what was done to the autistic people to be done to intellectual disability people. Like I know that with the Down syndrome community fight sort of fighting against the assumption that the best thing to do with a Down syndrome fetus is abort it. Mm. I guess that's probably the main parallel I can see where it's like, you know, we devalued this group of you know we devalued the autistic people and now we're devaluing the down syndrome people and we're not acknowledging what good down syndrome people being allowed to live and be born is so maybe that's the area where it's important to understand this history to not repeat it with a different group but i feel like we're not to the same extreme with any other disability group see i would worry that autism being given or being classified as a disease or something that is diagnosable mm-hmm. versus uh sexuality uh, n- non-heteronormative sexuality being classed as an aberrant social factor rather than being a diagnosis i think that's what well, used to be a diagnosis oh absolutely and, and and look certainly amongst people who look at autism as a personality trait there is the push to have autism removed as a diagnosis and i think that that's 
lovely, but a little bit optimistic. Because part of the thing, and, and this is, I think, where the, the criteria of dysfunction is key. Having autism in and of itself doesn't have to be dysfunctional. It's only when it becomes dysfunctional when you need to think about it in the context of interventions, uh, whether that's psychotherapy, social skills training, uh, or you know, if it becomes necessary medication. Whereas homosexuality is only ever dysfunctional when other people treat it as dysfunctional. So as we've talked before about how the hardest thing for kids growing up with gay parents is that other people bully them for having gay parents. It's not the fact that they have gay parents at all, you know? So I, I think that's, that's why I don't see that greater distinction because ultimately it depends on how you view it. If you are a bigoted, homophobic... Um, you know, narrow-minded individual, and you hear autism, and you go, oh, you have autism, you are therefore different, and I don't like you, then there is the risk that we fall back into that. The same way is if we looked at, uh, you know, LGBTQI in, in any greater sense. So I, while I don't know if we necessarily need to teach autistic history because of the greatness of the depth, and really we want to kind of focus more on just the present, at the same time I would argue that the risk of backsliding is not markedly different. Okay. So would you, like when the, t- when the kids are a bit older, would you get them to read neurotribes and teach them about what happened to autistic people in the past? I'm not sure. I would certainly suggest that they do it for their own information. I think that if they were curious about their diagnosis and wanted to understand their history better, yes. But would I insist on it? I don't know. Probably not. Would you? Probably not. But then I'm the one who thinks it's okay. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, so thinking about the treatment of autistic people and the treatment of gay people, which one feels more relevant to you? What, like, what do you identify with more as a struggle? Relevance is difficult because I I think that if we're talking about relevance, I'd say autism mm. because that, that that is something that has an impact on my day-to-day life. Whereas, as although I am gay, if I really look at the my the factors of my day-to-day life, being gay hasn't really influenced it. I'm still... I meant more, like, if you look back at the 80s and how autistic people and gay people were treated, you know, when you were a child or slightly before you were born. Like, when you watch an old movie about gay people being treated badly, do you identify with them more than you did with the children that in neurotribes who were, you know... No, but this is subjected. my point. You're, you're, it's a question between... What you've described there is not relevance. What you described there is impact, right? So the impact of watching gay people being treated uh, with hatred mm. affects me more than uh, people with autism being treated differently. But here is also, here's the distinction. There are probably less mm, popular media about people having autism in the past. Mm. Yeah, okay, you have your, your Temple Grand movie. Technically, you have Rain Man, although really it's not about the issue. It's more kind of a novelty. But I guess... In a way, that's kind of the thing, is that autistic representation in media, historically, has always been the oddball. Mm-hmm. It's it's the, the guy who, who says the crazy things, or the really rigid person, or the nerd. It's, it's not looked at as a plight. 
it's looked at as a as a humorous side character, whereas the struggles of LGBTQIA plus people is often the topic of movies and is often, you know, quite emotionally impactful because of the horrendous treatment, because of um, the way it was perceived, because of the the civil rights structure uh, struggles that had they had to go through. I think it's just very they're very different things. That's why again I want I've made the distinction between relevance versus impact. So, you know, we the whole the whole point of talking about LGBTQIA plus history in the last episode was because of the impact it had on me, because emotionally it's it's always seemed to be much harder. Whereas for people with autism, it's often when it get got coupled with intellectual disability, which is where institutions and and kind of this imprisonment attitude really came to the fore and was really was was the part that had impact whereas again if we assume that someone like Albert Einstein had autism uh functionally he was okay so the any movie about Albert Einstein and his genius wasn't about the struggles he had to dealing with other people Everyone else kind of went, oh, this guy's a genius. Let's give him some reverence. Let's give him, you know, the, the kind of credence he needs. And so the world adapted to him. And mm-hmm. then he was okay. So that's, that's how I kind of see it. Like, I, I guess looking at the larger idea of what do we want to teach our kids about autism? I mean, while I wouldn't necessarily get them to read Neurotribes, I think learning the, the broader lessons about acceptance, about environmental adaptation, about accommodation... And about identifying strengths. And particularly, I think, with my personal experience, being kind to yourself. I think are really the, the big lessons that I, I want the kids to learn. Um, I guess social justice might be a bit different. But I don't, I don't know how we could end up back where we were. On the, like in terms of sort of this autism needs to be cured kind of sentiment. I don't know how we're going to end up back there because I guess the way I see it, autism kind of crosses the the spectrum a little bit when it comes to both a personality trait as well as a diagnosable condition. And because of that, I think in a way there's a greater degree of sympathy. And I know that sounds a little bit sad, like it, it's not, I, I, it can be interpreted as pity, but I think that when people hear autism, there's this sort of impression that you get that it's something that should be worked around rather than sexuality of any variant, which is something you need to agree or disagree with. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, um, I think both people have attempted to cure and I think in both cases, the result is generally traumatising the person. Yeah. So I think any situation where someone's managed to, you know, alleviate the symptoms of autism with, like, magnets, it seems to just make the person sad. Like, they don't seem to enjoy having their symptoms alleviated. But but obviously you're citing a very specific example that you accounted for, and it's, uh, you've recently recounted in this podcast, mm-hmm. and... Um, it's not to say that that's not true, but at the same time, it's it comes down to how one perceives themselves. So someone might receive trans cranial magnetic stimulation and actually feel better for it. 
Like mm-hmm. they they might appreciate the um, the release of of the burden of some of these symptoms, but again, it's a spectrum. It depends on what symptoms they have and how badly it's affecting their life functionally. Um, part of it again is how other people treat them and what kind of world they live in. So, what kind of job they have, what interests they have, what kind of family they have. Um, but part of it is how they perceive themselves. Yeah, like I think that, like the magnets was a very specific example, but there's also therapies for autistic people where you train them like a dog. Yeah. Where you, like, hit, like, you give them a slap when they do something wrong. Like, not probably that too hard, but that you basically, yeah, use conditioning to train them to behave like they're not autistic. Yeah. Um, and a lot of people who have grown up um, being treated like that and under that therapy have are very negative to that therapy and advocate for kids to not be treated that way. Mm-hmm. So I think in that way it might parallel with conversion therapy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, look, I I certainly agree that that kind of um, what is it called positive punishment kind of treatment is mm-hmm. is neither effective nor appropriate. Again, though, I think it does depend on the degrees, and it depends on um, how, in what way, autism is perceived to be the problem. Mm. So let's say that a, a child's autism presents as um, defying their parents because, you know, they're very fixed on the facts and the knowledge. Yeah. That's not a good reason. That's the parent's problem to deal with. That's not the child's problem to deal with. Mm-hmm. Whereas if the uh, autism presents as physical aggression towards the parents, mm-hmm. um, that's slightly different. And so the approach, while yes, the first approach should be to try and meet the child's needs and to try and make them feel supported and comforted in the way they need, there may be a barrier or a limit to how effective that is. And so something along those lines, which is a bit more extreme, while philosophically you'd hear it and go, oh, I don't like it, it doesn't sound like the right thing to do, at the same time may be necessary. Because the reality is that we all have to live in society to some degree. I mean, look, if, if we were allowed to be hermits and just survive on our own, then great. And there are people out there who live like that. And if they're surviving and they're not affecting other people, fine. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, there's no need to really intervene on everyone's life. If their quality of life by their standards is fine. But I think that some of these treatments actually do have a place. And that's, and that's I think, where, why I don't think autism will ever go the way of sexuality. I don't think it'll ever become completely considered as a personality variant. Because the problem here is that sometimes the behaviour related to the autism can have an impact on the people around them. Mm-hmm. And if you do have comorbid intellectual disability, there's going to be a limit to how much you can self-manage. It's not to say that it's not possible, it's just there's going to be a limit to it. So then it, it, the responsibility then falls to the people around the, the person with autism, family, health professionals, whatever, to try and find a way to help that person exist in the world in a way that is peaceful and manageable. And, you know, that's why it has to exist somewhere in the middle. It can't just be... I mean, I've, I've had so many so many patients where the, the, the carers or the parents are like, can't you just, like, make them behave? And it's like, well, no, because their, their, their actions are a form of communication. They're wanting something. If you address that, then you'll find that the behavior will stop. But I'm not just going to put them on medication just so they become convenient for you to manage, 
right? If you, if you can't handle them, that's okay. Let's get you some support. Let's get you some more people, more people involved. Let's try to, you know, get them what they need, but with the help of other people. That's, that's kind of the, the general principle. So I think as, as with a lot of things in life, you've got to find the middle ground. Yeah, I do agree that there is a place for punishment. Um, I think I'd say that it probably should be reserved for situations where there, someone actually is in danger. Yeah. Because I think that if you use punishment for everything, like picky eating, yes, then it's hard to have the same effect when you use it for um, physical aggression. Yes. Agreed. Yeah. And picky eating, again, one would argue, is just people are allowed to be picky. That's, you know, that's a ch- if a child is picky with a food, okay. If they're nutri- being malnourished because of it, all right, you might need to find different ways of doing things. But in this modern era, there are so many ways to, to ensure that someone maintains their nutrition, you know, without necessarily having to force them to conform to what other people are doing. Yeah. And I think, look, that's... If we're going to wrap this up, this is this is the key message here, is that what while knowing the history in detail may not be quite as necessary, because I guess the hope would be that we don't fall back into that, I think the, there are lessons, as with anything with history, there are lessons to take away. And the lesson here is that people with autism have the right to choice and control, regardless of what degree of autism they have, or regardless of whether there is comorbid intellectual disability. There are limits to that, yes, because we exist in society. You know, if, if you didn't have autism and you broke the law, you know, you'd still go to jail. There are consequences to your actions when they affect other people. But we have to find a way to be patient and understanding. And if we as the carers or we as the people who are around the person with autism are not coping, we need to find ways to cope rather than making it the responsibility of the individual to be the one to change. Yeah, I'd agree. I, like, I feel like with autism, it's more about educating, I guess, ourselves about current best practices rather than the history. Mm. That's, that, yeah, because there's not a lot to learn from terrible things that were done. Well, there is a lot to learn, but the likelihood that we'll repeat them, hopefully, is fairly low. Yes. But yeah, so that, that would be my final thought, that like, I, I get that there is a place for the history, but I think that it's not as strong as a need for rainbow history to be understood. Mm. Well, but that's just my opinion. Fair enough. Well, every, every, everything we say on this is an opinion. <laughs> we're, we're not arbiters of fact. <laughs> Sometimes I just like to make it clear that it's just my opinion. <laughs> uh, so thanks for listening. Uh, if you enjoyed what you've heard today, be sure to check out our older episodes in the Spectrum Analysis series or any of the other series if they interest you. And reach out to us if you have uh, suggested topics or if you have any questions. Find us uh, on Facebook and Instagram at The Atypical Rainbow. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time.